0: Hey there and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Jeffrey Keating. It's that time of year again where we're all in speculation mode. What product themes and technology are most likely to define the year ahead? To make sense of product and design are headed next, Intercom co-founder Des Trainer hosts a roundtable discussion with Intercom's VP of product, Paul Adams, and our very own director of product design, Emma Conley, to chat about where our industry is headed in 2019.
1: They cover everything from bots and automation. I think it's not the simple thing of like, you're just trying to replace someone's job. And so often I think about this stuff in terms of like automation, which is this very menial low level task that I want to replace. But a lot of this stuff is also around augmentation. They're still human in the mix, but how can they make them a bit better at their job? Maybe by suggesting what they should reply with and things like that. To the state of messaging. When I think about when we launched the App Store and, and truly opened up the platform, one of the most exciting things for me was to see... Lots of things that we had talked about building or debated building, but either decided not to, maybe because it was kind of too niche, or we just hadn't managed to prioritize it at that stage.
0: And where they're currently looking for inspiration. As we've grown and scaled, I've started
2: realizing that I'm starting to send this paper to people and talk about the paper and talk about how Intercom is like the what is strategy. Like he uses Southwest Airlines and Ikea are great examples. You should read the paper. And Intercom, we're kind of playing out the strategy in the Michael Porter version of the world.
0: Some of these predictions might hit, and others, well, we've been wrong before. But if you're curious what we think is in store for 2019, let's hop in the studio and hear what our guests have to say. You're listening to Inside Intercom. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Welcome
3: to the Inside Intercom podcast. In this episode, I'm joined once again by our VP of Product, Mr. Paul Adams. Hello. And our Director of Product Design, Mr. Emmett Connolly. Good to be here again. And we're going to talk entirely about 2019, and this will be mostly looking forward. But before that, we'll just very, very briefly look back to October of 2018, when we had this event called The Next Chapter in San Francisco. At that event, Owen, our CEO, unveiled the next chapter of Intercom, which, loosely speaking, was all about our messenger, all about bots and automation, and all about apps on the intercom platform and how we really see that as the the next area that we're gonna lean into.
2: Paul, you have always hated bots. What changed? (laughs) I fell in love with a bot. (laughs) Um, So the landscape has changed for sure. And bots are happening Mm. and bots are coming, I'm convinced of it. I think bots are gonna be a massive, massive success as a technology. And we're on the kind of like face of the mass utilization of bots, I guess.
3: Just for the sake of our listeners, and maybe, I mean, you're on the same page, what do we mean by a bot here?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. We could probably break it down into a, a multiple ways to describe them. For me, like a bot is simply a piece of, you know, simple computer program that kind of runs some logic that can do things for you. Kind of like if this, then that. You know, a lot of bots work off of yeah. this, then that. Then you've got chatbots, which are like these simple little. If this say that, basically, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. Or if this happens, bot pops in, does Mm -hmm. something else, yeah, yeah. So these kind of change together. If this, then that. um, Pieces of logic, and then you get smarter with machine learning and stuff. Of course, yeah. Like so, if magic
3: condition, then say this, and then say that. Like what answer bot does, for example. Exactly. So what has changed in your perception or your belief that like they're gonna take over and rule the world or or be a significant part of our future?
2: Yeah. Um. So I'll try and keep this short because I could be here for an hour talking about this. And you don't want that. No. The basic gist of it is, I've always kind of believed that like bots were useful. Humans are great at some things and bots are great at other things. Yeah. Bots are great at things that are suitable for computer calculations, like yeah. when's my next bill due, or yeah. you know something. What's my bank balance? Yeah. Like a bot can answer immediately, mm-hmm. whereas a human has to go look it up. Mm-hmm. So bots is better for that type of thing. You know, also, you know, if a person is sitting there answering people's calls about what their bank balance is eight yeah. hours a day, they would yeah. go out of their mind with, with boredom. And so yes. there's just times when bots are great. There's times when humans are great, like yeah. when someone is angry or sad yeah. or yeah. needs, you know, a hug or some kind or of or has a really complicated inquiry. Or has say. a really complicated yeah. inquiry, yeah. yeah. Uh, like very fuzzy kind of inputs to it. Mm-hmm. And I think what happened was with bots specifically. Through kind of 2016, 2017, a lot of it was on Facebook Messenger, people started to think that bots were the answer to the, to the kind of internet scale challenge they have. Yeah. And the internet scale challenge is very simple, which is the human population is growing at a crazy rate. More and more of those people are going online, so therefore mm-hmm. the internet population is growing at a crazy rate. And there's just all these people who are prospective customers, and so businesses can't scale at the same rate, and so they need automation. Mm-hmm. And bots were heralded as, like, the answer. The savior. The savior. And it was kind of like, you know, executed in a pretty naive way. So bots are just used for everything. Yeah. All these things that humans should have been doing, bots are doing. So then they got a bad rep. Um, but now we're kind of coming out the other end. We definitely have come through the other end, yeah. I think. Do you think it's like we've scoped down the
3: problem space so that now there's a much neater fit between things we try to apply a
2: bot to and the suitability of a bot for the problem? Yeah, I think two things. Yeah, that that for sure. And and then the second thing, which is probably like the cause maybe of that, was people have realized um, what bots are and are not good for. Yeah. You know, like I remember two years ago it was all about like AI bots. Yeah, yeah. Oh, new AI bot. And you're like, what does yeah. that even mean? And now if someone's like, we've got a new AI bot, you'd be like, that sounds like a bunch of crap.
3: Yeah. Like, you know. Whereas if I told you, like there's a bot that can book health insurance, you're like, oh, that sounds like it could be useful. Right, exactly. Emmett, yeah. um, I'll come to you on, on, on this question, but just... I have to offer one of my own thoughts, which is something that frustrated me and has frustrated me for a while, is the idea of taking like a web form as we've known it forever, which is like labels and text inputs, and uh, okay. like let's say a contact us form, and simply putting speech bubbles around both sides of that, such as like name, instead of saying name with an input field, it would say, what's your name? And it would give you an input field, and you'd say Barry, and it would say, hi, Barry, what's your address? it was never clear to me what the hell the value prop there was, right? It was just like, hey, we already we already had web forms. Now we have them with like a blue gradient around them. Fantastic. And I often thought like then you end up in this world where bots are competing with UI. And frankly, like in the case of Paul's example, like a bot that tells you your bank balance, a thing that's even better than a bot on your bank balance is just a screen showing your bank balance, you know, <laughs> like, rather than what is my bank balance, just like, here's your fucking bank balance, right? How do you think about sort of when we should use UI versus when a bot has something net new to add?
1: Didn't see that when one I, coming, when <laughs> I think about this, yeah. Well, when I think about it, I th- like I don't think there's some magical thing about bots as distinct from most other forms of automation. In in some sense, as Paul was saying, like a bot is essentially a computer, simple computer program, and so like there's a lot of cases historically where automation comes along and um, takes over mm-hmm. a job that humans would have done, and I think there's some pattern where you know and and new. Framings like the chatbot framing come along that nibble away or eat into some like new use case. Yeah. But fundamentally, it's about thinking about what are you trying to achieve and what's a good mode in which to achieve that. Yeah. So like take your bank balance example there. Mm-hmm. Banks used to have bank tellers, right? Yeah. And you'd go to a bank if you wanted to get a bit of money out and you'd queue up, wait 15 minutes yeah. or whatever it was, and you get to a person, they hand you their your money. Then ATMs came along. And a lot of people now would walk into a bank and the people who want to just take out some cash would go to the ATM and do that very low-level transactional thing because it's better than waiting a long time. But if you, I don't know, your current account is in overdraft yeah, yeah, or you yeah. want to apply for a mortgage, you need to go and talk to a human. Yeah. So I think even within one domain, there are yeah. different tasks that are suitable to be automated versus those that are not yeah. suitable to be automated. Another interesting side note, by the way, we talk about automation and there's a lot of maybe concern yeah. about the impact, the societal impact of of automation and people being put out of a job. When ATMs were introduced, which I think was back in the early 70s, or throughout the 70s, it didn't put bank tellers out of work. Mm-hmm. More bank tellers across America, at least, which is where I read about this, were employed because it meant that you could have more banks available to more people mm-hmm. in smaller towns, smaller branches, yeah. right? And so I think it's not this, also it's not this simple thing of like, you're just trying to replace someone's job. Yeah. And so often I think about this stuff in terms of like automation, which is that, this very menial low-level task that I want yeah. to replace. But a lot of this stuff is also around augmentation. They're still yeah. human in the mix, but how can they make them a bit better at their job, maybe by suggesting what they should reply with and things like that. Right. So... There's a lot of nuance. I think you have to think about what you're really trying to achieve and if this new tool that's in the toolbox that's available to everyone fits. For us, it fits. I don't actually think we're even like used to be down on bots and now we think bots are amazing. Bots happens to be this thing that is very squarely aligned with what we're doing. We have a messenger. People often contact businesses using Intercom with a very simple Mm -hmm. question. Why not provide Say, yeah. a, a simple example, an automated response, right? But if we were, I don't know what, like a weather app like company, we would not be like, "Yeah, bots are amazing because yeah. they're not amazing for that they're thing. Not so that you're really looking for a fit between what you're trying to achieve and the technology that's available. It makes sense. I mean, like the areas where I think bots, obviously, a chat bot specifically here have like,
3: I think clear value is, one is if like the user has no intention of ever, of ever learning your interface whatsoever and they all ever knows how messaging works. So that's great. Uh, so that's a very clear sort of like, you know, value prop, which is, you know, rather than seeing or trying to work anything else out here, just ask us a question and we'll give you an answer or we'll tell you the questions we can answer and you can pick whichever answer you want. The other area I think where they, they can beat a traditional web form, which for me is, st- I still see bots deployed in so many cases where it's like, and what's your company size and what's your budget? And it's basically just a web form mm. masquerading as, a, as a, like an AI driven chatbot. But I do think when you're going to take somebody down various different paths based on their answers, like the, the form version of that is, if no, skip to question 7a, and mm-hmm. if yes, skip to question 8b. I think bots can do that sort of piece directionally like better than forms, but then we still end up in that debate about interface and should an, adapt- an adaptive UI might beat it yet again. But it is interesting, I think, if people ever test this, who will come out on top.
2: So i add yeah. just a real quick thing. Um, I think one advantage there of bots is they're, they're easier and faster to build like you know with a good with a good bot builder mm-hmm. um you can build these different flows different endpoints yeah uh, whereas like trying to build some kind of modular ui yeah is like way harder that's true yeah and
3: and they're probably more accessible to a lot more people as well in that with the right bot building tool for example, intercom spot building tool. That's what I was uh, <laughs> uh, Yeah. But in you know, in, in practice, like any marketer who wants to put a bot live on any page of their site can like with a just drag and drop some stuff together and basically ask the questions they want and then trigger the thing, whether it's like register for a webinar or start a video call or right. whatever makes sense. So I do agree there. Um you hinted at this idea of automation versus augmentation. I think in general we're seeing automation appear everywhere and like all the menial tasks of working online, behaving online, acting online are starting to like fall away. When you think about this beyond chatbots, what areas are you seen this happen in? And, and like, could, I'd love to hear some more about this sort of difference between automation augmentation.
1: Yeah, well, what areas is it happening in? I think depends on where we're at right now. I mean, like it's a moving boundary, right? Like, so back, whatever it was, 40 years ago, bank tellers doling out cash was the frontier of this. Mm-hmm. Seems like bus drivers and and. Car drivers are the current frontier. I'm sure that will be different again in in several years' time. I think some of the opportunities for this stuff, some of the things I I thought about a lot last year as we dove into this more were around the opportunities for democratizing access to actually building these things. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to build, you know, up, up until quite recently, if you wanted to build some kind of ML system, you needed to, like have a hardcore engineer who understood ML and used like TensorFlow or one of these very inaccessible to most product people, even I would say packages, most PMs, designers and so on. One of the things we built last year was our answer bot, which answers simple questions Mm -hmm. if it feels like it knows the answer. And it's machine learning based, but we didn't want people using Intercom to have to train the system in a very technical way. So we built this kind of UI where you can go in and you can train it on what your questions are and what you want to answer them with. And we kind of looked around and didn't really see anything, like a lot of prior art, a lot of existing systems that were like, what we really we really came to think of as like a content management system for ML, for ML yeah, or like a, a yeah. UI for training in ML. And so I, I'm really excited about that idea yeah. of those things becoming a little less opaque to even yeah. very technical people like us who may yeah. not, you know, be like active computer scientists. Um, another one, of not from Intercom, another yeah. one of my, the favorite, my favorite tools from last year was, um, it's called Lobe.ai. Yeah. It was by um, Mike Mattis, who who was uh, an early Apple employee. And it's, it's a similar idea. It's a drag and drop system where you can build your yeah. own AI systems. And so that to me, definitely feels like a frontier because a yeah. lot of this stuff is just still really hard to build yeah. manually, so to speak. You know, it's an interesting lens to take, like that. Uh, the you know
3: that the AI or the ML may well be powerful enough, and the biggest, the next frontier is actually accessibility and understandability of it, rather than like even more algorithms. If you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Changing tactics. So that's like we said we we're going to talk about messages, bots, and apps. Uh, apps specifically, one of the big success stories for Intercom last year was our app store. We've I think 140 odd apps on it now at this point and it includes like you know, you can now like pay for something through a Stripe app or you can like order a product through the Shopify app or any of those sort of things. Paul, I, I feel like it was like four years ago you talked you about this idea of the end of apps as we know them and that was like that apps would no longer really be a destination, but they'd really just be a thing that can exist anywhere. And that certainly is what's played out for us. But in Intercom, but obviously we've seen it out elsewhere, like there's apps inside Facebook, there's apps inside Facebook Messenger. Then there's things like, you know, just like Alexa can talk to apps and all that sort of stuff. Like the idea of there being a singular product has kind of faded away a bit. Um, do you think that'll keep going with
2: 2019? Have, you seen as, have we seen as much as you expect here? Yeah, it's been inter- interesting to watch it play out. I remember when I wrote that blog post in 2014, which is like four years ago, so it only took us four years to, for us to yeah. get here, which is kind of part actually of Actually five years ago, I five think. Years. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. I guess we shipped it in 2018. Yeah, yeah Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I remember in the blog post, I think Google Now had just shipped, just mm-hmm. like been announced. And I saw Google Now is this pretty amazing thing where it was like a feed of apps, basically. Right. And I had just come from Facebook, I'd been working at Facebook, which is also like this modular ecosystem where apps, you know, are a core part of the experience. And, it just, you know, became this very obvious thing. I thought at the time that apps would no longer be destinations that you would like yeah. drive traffic to, mm-hmm. and instead they'd start to appear all over the place. And you know, Internet of Things was also like yeah. quite cool thing at the time. Yeah. And I guess the surprise for me potentially was it just took so long to play out. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know really know why that was. Maybe a lot of the technology had to mature, and the distribution networks, for all the apps had to mature, yeah. and whatever else and probably the product mindset of everyone who's working on these things
3: in a sense. Totally, that. like, that's true There's all sorts of APIs and shit need to get built out, but you need to prioritize right. that work.
2: Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. That's very true. And so, and even apps like Stripe, you know, mm-hmm. like I don't know when Stripe were founded, but like in 2014, they weren't very mature, yeah. I, I would yeah, guess. right? for sure. They
3: were probably three or four
2: years old. Yeah, and so so over that time, the whole landscape's matured, as we said, and and so I do think that we have reached this point where people think like this, not necessarily by default, but it's certainly a part, of, part and parcel of how people think, like, mm-hmm. What are the distribution different distribution networks for our apps? Where might they show up? So I do think it will continue. It's hard to say, like we're going big on this idea at Intercom. You know, we have yeah. an app store, like you said, it's it's doing really well. It's still early days. We're going to like invest and invest and invest in both like the developer side of it and help mm-hmm. external developers get value from building an intercom, an app in the intercom ecosystem. And then in other places, you know, I still wonder like media, you know, Google now looks a lot like it did in 2014. Right. It still looks like a lot of, News websites and cards, mm-hmm. and so I wonder where all the apps are. You know, Google Inbox or Gmail, as it's now known. is dying. Yeah, RIP. Gmail has apps. You know, they kind of announced this app framework mm-hmm. last year. Again, that's something I would have thought in 2014 was kind of happening imminently. Yeah, but it exists now, and so I think as things like Gmail, and if hopefully that app ecosystem takes off, I think it's just good for everyone. Yeah. I mean it has to react really, like, I mean, like, what, eight hundred million users or something
1: like that. Like a right, like, like,
3: yeah. yeah, you have to believe
1: in it. It speaks to the difficulty in designing a platform though. You know, you can't just say, Well, here we made it we made a you know, a UI toolkit or whatever it is and like go for it. And so there's just so many dynamics at play. You've a multi sided marketplace of users and builders and you need to get all the incentives right for everybody for it to work. So yeah. it's a an extremely tricky community management almost uh, yeah. problem as well as just like building the right product
3: I, I actually worried about that a bit because like when we were building ours I was always thinking I can see what we why we want this but like as in for us it was about extending the capabilities of our messenger setup. So frankly we didn't have to build literally everything everyone would ever want and obviously we had like you know like 30,000 customers at the time and we had like you know a lot of reasons why other companies should de-
2: then therefore go and build on it but it was still a hard fought
3: battle to get those products out there
2: right? Yeah, it might be interesting to, to kind of distinguish between the consumer side and the enterprise side. Yeah. So for consumer software, you tend to get these like big big winners, these like very small number of big winners. So, like on the Facebook ecosystem, you know, there's like a very small numbers of big winners. Like, How do you mean by that? Like, um, it? like Zynga, originally. Oh, right, like and, stuff like that. and like, like Spotify. Yeah, yeah, you know, like Spotify yeah, yeah. grew substantially via Facebook. Yeah. Pinterest mm-hmm. grew, like, you know, I think one of the causes of Pinterest growth mm-hmm. was Facebook. You tend to get these big winners. And then, like, just, you know, hundreds and thousands of, of like, losers, effectively, yeah, people who, yeah. who, who didn't work out. I think, like, an enterprise software, or, like, enterprise is the wrong word, like, B2B software, yeah. where, like, businesses are selling to other businesses. Like, in like in our case, at Intercom, yeah. you might see different dynamics because yeah. every business is unique. and Like you said, as we can't build everything people want, and so we kind of tend to think of these apps as, like, the last mile, mm-hmm. you know, like, the, the kind of last piece of the puzzle. Like, we can kind yeah. of get you most of the way there, and then... Mm-hmm. These apps that you can use in our in our ecosystem yeah. mean that you can get the full job done, right? And because of that, people will tend to use a lot more of them because mm-hmm. the there's just like a wider pool of types of usage.
3: Yeah, and there's probably a lot more nuanced last miles as well. Right? Exactly. Like, yeah. To make this tangible, Emma, what's your favorite uses of our uh, messenger platform?
1: When I think about when we launched the app store and and yep. truly opened up the platform, one of the most exciting things for me was to see. Lots of things that we had talked about building or debated building, but either decided not to, maybe because it was kind of too niche, or we just hadn't managed to prioritize it at that stage. specific last miles almost, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, like, and some of them is big stuff, like um, Aircall built a video calling app. So you can do video calls inside our messenger, a thing that we had like speculated and talked about doing for a long, long time. But even narrower stuff like NPS, right? Mm -hmm. A little app to do NPS. I think there's a couple of examples of that. And that was something, again, that we might yeah. have done. But yeah. I, I, I would imagine if you're especially a, more of a long tail like customer yeah. to see really specific things that Intercom could never have built, especially for you. We just couldn't justify it. Like, couldn't, we like, couldn't have justified what, it. What's that screen
3: sharing one like Loom? Like it's like it's right. I want to be able to share screens in this customer support relationship when I'm trying to debug something on the customer's thing. It's like, sure you are, but like, gosh, that's not a common request. However, now we can actually
1: point you to a perfect working
2: solution through Loom.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's probably a killer use case yeah. and use of intercom for yeah. for a bunch of people out there, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm quite um, honest,
2: you, like, Loom in this case, will execute it better than us. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. They're the it's domain their experts. Their business. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, right,
1: exactly. Yeah. Um, and then the,
3: I think there was the other one I, I really liked was uh, the translation one because, again, that was something that, like, we'd been asked for forever, which is, like, I think it's unbabble that does it, but, like, Help like help two people who don't share any language in common speak a common language uh, simply by translating on both sides, which is uh, re- again Amazing, something yeah. we always knew was going to be possible when you hook up like Google's Translate API with this and with that and all that. But like it never got to the top of our like prioritization stack. Whereas what's really fascinating for me is when you actually create these platforms well and make it enticing to build. The prioritization kind of takes care of itself. And because, that, like, that's never our priority. But if you're in it probably was your priority to be mm-hmm. on one of the most popular messengers for businesses out there. You know? Yeah.
1: yeah. I suspect there's, like, back to what Paul was saying about the winner takes all type dynamic in uh, consumer products and then in B2B, it being a bit more like success being a yeah. bit more distributed. There's, it feels to me like there's a lot more opportunities for a mutual victory yeah. to happen for yeah. like it's you know it's good good for intercom strengthens the platform good for let's say um, air call because they mm-hmm. get greater reach yeah. and it's obviously good for the customers of both of those products as well and yeah. so I think that kind of dynamic really emerges more easily in B2B products where people are, are paying for the products mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and therefore both those businesses can win by providing a better service to that customer and so maybe there's some kind of dynamic there where platforms are I don't want to say platforms are easy because they're extremely (laughs) challenging but like there's um, more of a route to success for businesses like ours that charge money for their product. For sure. Okay so then changing tact a little we're like uh, we're sitting here in
3: January we're like heads down uh, just finalizing our plans for the year and when we think of the next 12 months for like the product and engineering teams what are some of the high level themes that you're you're both focusing on. Paul, we'll start with you. Like, When you look 12 months ahead, what areas are you thinking of? What's the message you're sending to the teams, et cetera?
2: Yeah, uh, it's actually kind of fascinating for me. Like I'm smiling here. Making it know, fascinating for our listeners too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we've talked about like bots and apps and the vision and all that kind yeah. of stuff. The thing, one of the things I'm most excited about, maybe the thing I'm actually most excited about right now, is helping our new and existing customers get more value at Vintercom. It's basically onboarding, Mm -hmm. Uh, like onboarding over a long period of time. You know, your first use and then like ongoing use. And I think that's for many reasons. But one big one is, you know, last year we shipped over 140 customer facing features and changes, brand new products, the whole thing. And I guess just didn't invest in onboarding as much as we might have. It's Uh, hard to keep pace. It's hard to keep pace. Exactly. And so we've actually, we're in the process of completely redesigning onboarding from the ground up. It's this whole new modular system where, you know, ultimately the goal is that every single Intercontent customer, a new customer, existing yeah. customer, will have a personalized onboarding experience nice. where we'll offer them the next thing to do. Oh, you did yeah. A, B, and C, try yeah. D. Yeah. Or, hey, you're all the way down, like down Q, R, S T, and, you know, you might want to try something else. And so I'm actually phenomenally excited about that. I think it's got a huge, it's going to have a huge impact on our business. And so...
3: it's in, Yeah, it's interesting. So. like, yeah, you know, I think this is true for every product. At some point, the best, the biggest value comes from revisiting rather than like net new product, and it certainly seems to be the case there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are there any other would uh, within say the design uh, aspects of
1: Intercom? Um, we, I'm de- definitely excited about a bunch of the new product that yeah. we're building, but I would imagine our marketing team would wouldn't consider this the ideal forum You to, heard it here first new that. product <laughs> <laughs> um, A big theme for us in general outside of design has been going global We, mm-hmm. you know in the past in years past a lot of our um, R&D effort has been based in Dublin we have R&D in San Francisco and London now and so a big opportunity that we're actively yeah. working on is thinking about how to build a global team H- yeah. how does a team and even to what degree should we be like completely one coherent team versus yeah. the, the the opportunity to break into loosely coupled sub teams that yeah. are pointed in the right direction but not shackled to one but another like, yeah, so locally specialized if needs yeah be. right exactly yeah. and and so there's just a lot of exciting opportunity there for us to Really scale up in a way that we haven't been to been able to when we been just in when we were just in yeah. one location. As you both look ahead to like 2019, knowing that we're probably going to hire a lot of people in
3: all three of our product and engineering offices, what are the organizational challenges you're going to keep a close eye on? Is there stuff you anticipate might break or stuff you might anticipate goes off the rails uh, unless you pay a lot of attention?
2: Uh, I think as we've grown, you know, trying to scale an appropriate hierarchy is like an ongoing challenge. I mean, challenge in a good way. And yeah. I mean, like, appropriately hierarchical in that yeah. as you add more people, you need more layers. The reason you need more layers is because if you've got one manager with 20 reports, guess what? Yeah. All 20 people are going to have Are like, you saying holacracy is not the solution? I'm saying that. <laughs> 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 um, Paul would not have a job. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. I don't know, yeah. he yeah. yeah, just floating around the place. Yeah. And so that's that's kind of one of the biggest things. Yeah. And what I mean by appropriately hierarchical, you know, like, it's not my job or Emmett's job or your, da- your mm-hmm. job does to, like, be in the weeds of any of the work. Mm-hmm. And so we need to continue to design our process and operations such that we're not. And we have like local leadership and kind of empowerment within the teams yeah. within the guidelines of our strategy. Mm-hmm. So our job increasingly is deliver the strategy, the company strategy, you know, alongside our yeah. other uh, leaders in the company. And then like, you know, the la- each layer down will then yeah. kind of take their part of it yeah and execute it really well and then make sure that they're connected to the pieces that they should be connected to
1: makes sense don't know if there's a, some specific like oh my god this one problem is going to screw us in yeah. the year ahead thing that's in, in in my head but um i think about this in a in in terms of what's often referred to as design thinking design yeah. thinking is like the ability for organizations to take a more iterative approach um to how they organize themselves and given that like as yourself and own co-founders were, were designers and Paul, you were, I, I think we, without explicitly calling it design thinking, I've started to realize that we have always taken a very iterative approach to how we run the company and how we run teams. And so at this stage, I kind of have a certain degree of blind faith that something will go wrong. And in the year ahead and that we will have the ability to like recognize it and self-correct because we're constantly revisiting our process, because we're constantly going to the teams and asking them for what's starting to break for them. And so it's hard to know what specifically will break. But I, like I said, have a high degree of confidence in our ability to like self-heal and and work around those things fairly quickly.
3: Cool. Last question, a different topic uh, to give our readers some inspiration for 2019. What are you
1: both reading, Emmett? We'll start with you. I am reading the internet. Uh, <laughs> I do that quite often. Yeah. Uh, in terms of books, I'm reading a book called um, The Design of Childhood. Right. It's uh, by Alexandra Lang, who is uh, the New Yorker architecture critic. This makes me sound super smart. That so makes me sound mean, like a design leader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> do you want, will I tell you a bit about it? Do you sure, want to yeah, it? please. It's about the design of childhood. It's about the objects that uh, that occupy child, small children's lives and yeah. um, how they're designed and how the design of them affects them. What's really interesting about it is the chapters are kind of structured where she starts with building blocks and small toys that they're first exposed to. And then it looks at how houses are often like childproofed, as it's called, and how we redesign the the house around the child, then their street and their neighborhood and finally the city. And so it's this kind of like Russian nesting doll approach. And structurally, it's very similar to a book that we refer to quite a bit, the Christopher Alexander one called A Pattern Language, which is also an architecture book, but it's about how the design of things starts with the detail and then you consider the context around yeah. it, like the objects yeah. in a room, a room yeah. and, and and so on outwards. And by the way, this design of childhood book is interesting to me because I have kids and it's mm-hmm. just an interesting book. But it also that kind of nested approach refers to how we think about we talk a lot about system design, uh, which is quite an abstract thing to to grok really. And it helps, and I think architecture, because it's the spatial thing, it's easy to relate to, really helps orient your mind in that direction.
2: We'll be sure to link it up in the show
3: notes. Paul,
1: what are you reading these
2: days? Um, So the best book I read last year that I am still referring back to was a book called Principles by By Ray Dalio. Dalio. And it's brilliant. I, I highly recommend it. It's kind of a strange book in that the first third or so is him kind of recounting his
3: life.
2: Mm-hmm. He's very, fina- you know, in finance, very successful invest- investment banker, I think. Uh, you know, started his own company and blah, 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 you know, went bust, went back up again. Uh, and so the first third of it is kind of like, you're like, what? I'm reading an autobiography. <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: um, but then it all makes sense kind of as he plays out the principles that he derived from his life. Right. And I, I kind of realized reading this book that we've run intercom on principles. Mm-hmm. And like... Uh, we never really explicitly said it. It kind of came up here and there. We never really... And we started saying it a lot more, I think. And we've started writing down principles. Yeah. You know, principles for this, principles for that. And it's been, I think, a huge success. And so I'd highly, highly recommend principles. Awesome. Book. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, the other one that's another kind of like uh, fan favorite coming back to me is the Michael Porter paper called "What is Strategy. It's an oldie. It's an oldie. I think it's from the 70s. Something like that. It's definitely... 70s, yeah 70s, think. Yeah. And it basically explains what strategy is, which right. um, always useful. <laughs> always useful, and just talk and just talks about how you know, you need to build out a connected strategy. Things need to connect to one another. It inherently involves trade offs. You know, you need to decide to do one thing versus another, and it's just a, a brilliant paper. And yeah. I think. Again, like, we've kind of enacted this. Like, you introduced it to me, Des, number yeah, yeah. years ago. We kind of enacted this in Intercom. We're not actually really talking directly about the paper. But now, as we've grown and scaled, maybe this is another yeah. answer to your question earlier. Yeah. As we've grown and scaled, I've started realizing that I'm starting to send this paper to people yeah. and talk about the paper and then talk about how Intercom is like the what is strategy. Like, he uses Southwest Airlines mm-hmm. and Ikea are yeah. great examples. You should read the paper. And um, Intercom we're kind of playing out the strategy yeah. you know in the in the Michael Porter version of the world so that's another kind of goldie I think everyone should have a look at that I'm just happy that you read things I send you <laughs> yeah that was one cool uh,
3: okay uh, Paul Emmett thank you very much and we'll look forward to chatting to our listeners again at the end of the year or maybe sooner sounds great cheers Des
0: you've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast for more episodes visit soundcloud.com slash intercom If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com.